Alright guys, welcome back to Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who just love talking about movies. Joining me as always is Cesar Alejandro Jr. from Filmsmash.com. I like to emphasize it, Filmsmash.com. Hey everybody, what's up? Um, yeah. <laughs> welcome back, it's been a while. It has. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh scheduling and everything's been pretty tough um, this is one of the busiest time of year for everyone even though it's not working in retail i'm all for transparency so i just want to just want to begin by saying that this is the second time that we've recorded this <laughs> because my internet blows so we went through the introductions we introduced our very special guest we started a conversation and then we had to just cut it off because you know it didn't work so we're back for real. Thankfully, thankfully, we didn't get too far, so we're we're not going to be retreading too much territory. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully we'll do it better this time. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I, I, I'm more of a Frank Sinatra type, though. I like a one take, so. Yeah, me too. But, you know, um, so uh, do you want to introduce our very special guest? Uh, I do. Can I? Please. Our special guest, uh, for people who um, know CJ and I in our real lives, uh, we used to work at Suncoast Video. We have a guest who also was a former employee, but from uh, maybe a, like half a generation earlier than me, though we have worked together. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Jason Swoboda. Of course, Hi. I'm talking about Jason Swoboda. Hi, everybody. How are you? Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, man. It really is a pleasure, yes. So, we haven't really had that many guests, so you can count yourself among, like, very elite uh, company. It's good to feel elite. i feeling it. Feeling the love. <laughs> we love you, man. <laughs> well, this is a long time coming because we actually talked about doing this last year. Yeah. And then I said, how about planes, trains, and automobiles? Yeah, so it, it only took a year of negotiating with Jason to get him on the show. Yeah. So he's fully prepared. Uh, we're doing one of his favorite movies, right, Jay? My favorite movie. Absolute favorite movie? Like, draw the hard line in the sand? It's a hard line. Nice. Wow. Well, I wish I liked it better, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, uh, you know, as usual, we, you know, say, uh, hopefully, Jason, you listen to the show. If you, I if, have. On occasion, you have? I have. Okay, I good. So, you know, we usually start this off by talking about, um, a, you know, a different movie or so that we've been watching recently that we'd like to recommend. So, you know, I usually let Cesar go first. Um, you know, but if you're, if you're, if you're prepared, you certainly can take and, and go first if you'd like. Well, I would love to recommend the movie I just watched last night, um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs by the Coen Brothers, that's on Netflix. It premiered on Friday after its very limited theatrical run, which I didn't even know happened. So that's how limited it was. <laughs> it was very exclusive. Yes, but it's it's like a typical it's typical Coen Brothers and if you like their movies, it's it's a it's a pleasure. I imagine if you don't like their movies, especially recently, you, you will be miserable for two hours and 11 minutes. <laughs> is, is this more True Grit or more Hail Caesar? Oh, gosh, you know, it's 
it's a little more Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Wow, nice. It's, it's, it's got some incredible absurdities to it, and it's a, it's because it's a lot of short stories put together in one movie. Because originally when they announced it, I thought it was going to be a series of like several. I was like, oh boy, a whole bunch of Coen Brother movies. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. Too, yeah, really. but it's it's two hours and thirteen minutes, and that's it. And you know, it's it's just different stories, and it's very. I I enjoyed it a lot, but I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan, and so they can make uh, intolerable cruelty, and I'll watch it and like it. And they <laughs> that's did. All I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I added it to my queue um, as soon as it uh, became available. But even before the thing was available, they had a little like um, listing for it to add to automatically for when it um, went live. I've heard it uh, from people who have seen it. They've described it as kind of like um, they've actually said it feels like "Oh, brother, art thou crossed with coffee and cigarettes?" I don't remember coffee and cigarettes that much. So you mean the the Jarmouche film? Yeah, that's an odd combo. That's what that's, that's how someone has described it to me. So I don't know too many people who have actually seen it, and uh, I haven't been reading reviews because I'm looking forward to watching it. Hopefully tonight. So nice. yeah, it's definitely worth it. Um, that's that's my recommendation. So does it have the normal Coen Brothers all star stellar cast of regulars? It does. Um, and a lot of them are in like little tiny, like roles that maybe last a minute in some cases. Yeah. Um, but you don't get. I mean, there's no John Goodman. There's no Steve Buscemi. So I guess you're, if you're thinking of those actors now, they're they're not in that one. I was thinking like Stephen Root, and like he's in that. He has a he has a very very memorable part in this one. What he's about Taturo? No, John Taturo. Uh, Sam Raimi in it. If he was, I didn't recognize him, and I was like, kept looking at the cast list as I was going through it. Um, but I, I just, I, I don't believe he was. Is Matt Damon's mustache in it? <laughs> James Franco's mustache is in it. <laughs> Ooh. James. <laughs> He's it. The one, um, the one guy that actually plays Buster Scruggs. Um, Tim Blake Nelson, yeah. who was in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He plays Buster Scruggs in like the first story in that. So he's he's a return uh, person. So nice. A return actor. A return person. Kind of like your thread to all these vignettes? or No, it's just, he's just, in the, I don't want to give away too much, but he's he's in the beginning. He's the, the singing cowboy, and it's, it's probably the most entertaining out of all of them, as far as like humor. Um, there's also so, a segment where Tom Waits plays a prospector, and once you realize it's Tom Waits, you're just like, oh, that's awesome. When are the Coens going to just break down and just do a full-on musical? They kind of did that with, um... Oh, brother, right there. I guess... Well, Hail, Hail Caesar, Caesar has that Channing Tatum dance number, but... That, and is that not the funniest thing that they, they maybe have ever done <laughs> Probably not the funniest thing. I, I think it's humorous, but I mean, we're talking a pretty illustrious filmography here. So it's no go. It's no go Eagles, but it's no go. A real Muncie girl. What do you think the funniest movie the Coens have done is? I think it's Raising Arizona. Oh, gosh, I don't know. 
I mean, Oh Brother Art Thou probably. My favorite Coen Brothers movie is the, uh, the uh, um, Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, that's, that's good. Mine too. It is. I love the Hudsucker Proxy. It's, it's it's their most whimsical and charming out of. It's everything. yeah, my favorite Coen Brothers film. I don't think it's their best one, but it's my favorite certainly. Yeah, it's. I would say it's my favorite as well. All right. I guess as far as funny, Raising Arizona, yeah, that would probably be the, the funniest one that they've done. I just want to shout out to Jason. I'm shooting you a, a digital high five over the internet. All right. Hudsucker Proxy. Your shared love of Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> We're bros now. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? <laughs> Stay away from my drum set. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, cool. Uh, Cesar, what about you? Anything you want to recommend to the kids at home? Well, you know, it's a film I hadn't watched for a while, um, but uh, I really haven't been watching that many films in the last week or two. But uh, I rewatched um, Fearless, starring Jet Li. Nice. It's from 2006, um, and the version I watched was actually the director's cut version, which is about 20 minutes long or so. Um, now, for people who've seen who are who know the film it's basically about uh who don't know the film it's basically about a, a real life martial arts master named uh, huo wanja who is um probably one of the most famous like figures in, in like chinese culture and martial arts you know modern day anyway but jet li plays this gentleman who um basically expounded wushu chinese uh martial arts as kind of like a way to better themselves as opposed as opposed to like you know, the, uh, the violent acts that used to predate it in Chinese, uh, society. So, I mean, a lot of people would be familiar with the character, even if they don't know the name. Um, Bruce Lee did a film called Fist of Fury, um, where he plays the student of Huo Wan Zhao. So, I mean, Dusty dictates that this guy dies, um, in a very selfless way. And, you know, the movie very, very much so expounds it. Um, it also features great martial arts, a great international cast. Um, I mentioned I, was, I watched the director's cut, which actually has uh, bookended scenes um, starring Michelle Yeoh um, and a couple of extra fight scenes. Um, overall, I don't think the director's cut makes it a better film, um, but there's probably like three or four cuts of the movie I've seen, um, including the theatrical cut, which was released in the United States, was actually pretty different from the first time I watched it. But um, revisiting it was pretty great. You know, I, I've said it before, but I think this is probably the most complete Jet Li film. Probably his best, um, his best um, starring role. Um, and it's surprising. The film's directed by a guy named Ronnie Yu, who in the U.S. most people would probably know for having directed uh, Freddy vs. Jason, which is, uh, you know, not a good film. Not a good film. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, Fearless I've never seen Freddy vs. Jason. Fearless is a terrific film, though. Awesome. Versus Jason has uh, Jason Ritter in it, so you know it's bad. <laughs> yeah, well, if Freddy versus Jason, it was just you know, it was that 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 matchup you always wanted, and then you get to it and you're like, okay, this is the best we could do for was that early two thousands or late nineties? Two thousand three, maybe. Yeah, that was the best they could do then. <laughs> better than Alien versus Predator. So, is it really the matchup you always wanted? Well, if you were into, like, Jason and Freddy and all this horror, would be sure. Mm, I don't know. I used to play video games of Robocop versus Terminator based off the comics and everything. So you want those matchups. Huh. 
that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, well, how about you, CJ? What have you been wanting anything to recommend? uh, Well, you know, because it's November and uh, classic film buffs have have appropriated this this time period of the year for noir films, uh, you know, dubbing it Noir-vember, I've been watching a lot of classic film noir. Um, we were going to do an episode on, uh, out of the past, which, uh, I ended up having to cancel the recording with Cesar. So that was my fault. I apologize. Um, but, uh, I guess, I guess the one that I'll highlight that, that I watched recently, um, that I, I really think is one of the best fully formed film noir. Film noir is something, you know, that we've talked about on the show a bunch of times and, uh, you know, film noir was sort of a movement. Uh, a lot of people think of it as an aesthetic. A lot of people think of it as a genre, but it was really, you know, just kind of like a, a, a darkness that kind of crept into Hollywood movies that sort of gave a lot of B pictures a little bit more mean spirited nature, a little bit more pessimism and nihilism and things like that. And, uh, and a lot of them, have elements of noir but don't really kind of capture what we think of as noir in 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 a whole uh you know way and i and i think one of the one of the best ones is the original version of the killers directed by robert siadmak and i think i don't have it in front of me i think it's 1946 but don't quote me on that um and it stars burt lancaster and ava gardner um and uh, it's just a it's just a terrific film, and you know the the opening scene is two men um, who come to a small town, and they're looking for a guy called the Swede, and uh, that scene ends with them killing the man uh, played by Burt Lancaster, and it's very menacing, it's very dark, it's very moody, uh, and then the rest of the film is flashbacks, sort of explaining why. Uh, this happened to this man and why he in fact did not run from his fate that he was tired of running and when the guy goes to warn him he just says I did something wrong once Uh, and all the events in the film sort of lead you back to that point where uh, explaining why uh, the hit went out on him and it's uh, it's a terrific film beautiful cinematography Uh, it's well edited um you know, it's told in a flashback structure, which is very uh, prototypical for noir films. Uh, and I and I, I love the film. It's just one of the it's one of my top five noirs easily. Um, so I would definitely recommend that one. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to do a full episode on Out of the Past. Um, you know, because I would still like to do that because that's another great one. But I think uh, if you're going to watch a noir movie this this November and you want to check out something you haven't seen and you haven't seen The Killers, highly recommend it. 1946 was correct, by the way. Awesome. Is The Killers, uh, is that the Criterion release? Uh, that's how I watched it. I have the Criterion Blu-ray, yes. And it's got both versions because Don Siegel made a remake in the 60s, which has Lee Marvin and Ronald Reagan and uh, you know some other people in it. And that one's good in its own way, but it feels more like a hard-boiled crime story and less of a noir, whereas... Um, the 1946 version is, you know, it's it's got that it's got that noir vibe, that attitude of the of the era, that the fashion, and um, 
you know, just really <clears throat> beautifully made movie. Loved it. And Ava Gardner is, you know, um, not a true femme fatale in in the in the sense that we think of them, but she's a, a, a you know a good character, and she she does a good job in her part of the film as well. Yeah, so, I've never seen the movie. I actually I own it on Blu-ray, but as always, there's a, a stack of unopened Criterion's yeah. just sitting in front of my television. Yeah, there's always, there's one in front of me right now. <laughs> I always get confused with uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing whenever someone mentions The Killers. So I actually just watched The Killing as well and Killers Kiss because they're on the same Blu-ray and and they're both very very good movies as well. They're all, are they a part of the cinematic universe? Same. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Uh, I noticed Jason when we when we first logged on because you know obviously you guys are just listening to us but we have a video chat going uh, and Jason you have that beautiful re-released Touch of Evil poster on your wall. I do. Yes. I do. I even have a second one that for some reason I have that's just here. That's funny because I have that same poster and I can't find it. So maybe you have mine. <laughs> You would like it. If in case you can't find it, I will gladly send you my extra. Well, I I was going through my posters. Uh, I we're getting way off topic here, but I was going through my movie posters a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and I found I also have the God. I think it's the 60th anniversary re-release of the Third Man that Rialto Pictures put out in theaters. And it's a beautiful black and white image from that iconic scene when you first see Harry Lyme in the doorway. And so everything's black and white, but then the title is in red, just like that Touch of Evil poster. And it's just, it's so striking. It's a beautiful poster, and I hope I actually get to properly display it one day, because it's just sitting in a tube right now. And that's not a good way to display it. No, no. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. Great to have you on the show. We'll see you later. (laughs) That is not the proper way to display it. But let's let's move on to um, to planes, trains, and automobiles. And uh, seriously, we're really happy to have you on. And as I said, you know this has been a long time coming. So why don't you introduce uh, the film, Jason? What is planes, trains, and automobiles about? Planes, trains, and automobiles is about Neil Page trying to get home for Thanksgiving, and he encounters somebody along the way that uh, during his his extremely long process to get home and he learned he, he grows more by the end of the journey but it's it, that, that's my that's my elevator pitch but um i think everyone's familiar with this in the past couple years i mean it was always considered to be a very funny movie everyone always liked it everyone talks about the scene in the rental car place but i think in the past couple years or so it's really taken off um, because everyone wants to have a movie associated with every holiday. And I think Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I think other than Home for the Holidays, which isn't as well uh, regarded, but that's probably the closest, like, prototypical Thanksgiving movie that there is. Uh, there is. You mean Gary Marshall hasn't made a Thanksgiving Day movie yet? No, <laughs> that would probably be a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> He's got one for every other small holiday out there. <laughs> I mean, a lot of a lot of holiday movies that that do come out, and this is the case with Christmas too, like Christmas movies. But it's a lot of Thanksgiving movies. It's like, oh, you gotta go see my family. Ah, oh, they're terrible. I'm gonna have such a horrible time. And this this movie kind of 
it's about Thanksgiving where they're trying to get home for Thanksgiving, but it's more or less like it's just a comp it's a good human story and it's a good character story. So there's some things that are timeless in it and obviously some things with the inventions of cell phones and Uber probably would render the entire story incomplete. <laughs> you probably couldn't do that any longer. Um, but well, they I, tried I think, it with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. That was horrible. <laughs> you didn't like the... Here's the thing. You didn't like those... Like, I didn't like those characters in Due Date. I... You can find pieces of yourself inside of Del Griffith and Neil Page. Like, it's just... And there's, I just always have this odd connection with the, both those characters. You see where they're coming from in each instance. Um, and we've probably been there where we've been utterly frustrated at somebody. and But you still just keep moving on. Alright, I'm, I'm going to say something off topic here. Okay. Uh, well, tangentially related. But like, um, it's... I'm looking um, now at the cast list names. And I gotta say, in my mind, when they said their names, it's not how I how I spelled it at all. <laughs> so I Neil was like with an I, and I thought Paige was with an I, and I thought Dell was with two L's. So just <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it was just uh, you know fundamental confusion, not very. Hey, well, you know this podcast is educational as well, so yeah, absolutely. Because you know this is radio and audio, you know I make the distinction. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think Dell is probably short for either Delbert or Delanor or something like that. Yeah, they don't ever they Del- don't ever say it. it's never like, even in everything I've read about it, it's never said that it's short for anything. No, but I think that that's part of see like the whole thing about Candy's character in general is that he's sort of very relaxed and down to earth and. Uh, you know, approachable uh, as opposed to Steve Martin's character who is more like the uptight businessman. Uh, and and Dell, you know, is, is you know, it, it, it's like you would call somebody Chuck, you know, like, hey, Dell, you know, what's going on? It's, it's very sort of like um, uh, informal, uh, very casual, you know, and I like that. Well, speaking about Dell, when we get into John Candy, <laughs> yes, I am. Well, I'm a huge John Candy fan. I always have. Growing up um, as a, a youngin in the '80s and '90s, John Candy movies were always readily available in my house. Um, you know, this movie, which I was allowed to see at a very, very, very young age, Uncle Buck, um, who's Harry Crumb, Delirious. You know, I, I watched them all. I just I loved John Candy. I thought it was. He's, he, he's still beloved to this day. But how, how do you guys feel? Yeah, absolutely. I think for people of a certain generation, I mean, it's hard to believe he's been gone for like 25 years or, or more, right? 24. 94? Yeah. No, almost 25. But I, like, I, I cried the day he died. I remember yeah. getting news, leaving school. It was awful. I don't, um, I don't really remember... Like, I remember when he died, I don't remember emotionally how I felt, but, you know, I think for people of a certain, like, uh, age, I think he defined a lot of comedy, uh, you know, with the 80s being so kind of, like, prolific, and, I mean, especially today, people look back on that period very fondly uh, in films, he's in some of, like, some of the greats, I mean, you mentioned a number of them, but, yeah, John Candy was something special, I think, I've always thought so. 
Yeah, he was in, uh, you know, his, he had a cameo in Home Alone, even. Yeah, he was the polka, Gus Polinski, the yep. polka king of the Midwest. Polka, polka, polka. Does a, you know, it's a, li- a little bit of, uh, you know, hilarity to a certain scene in this movie. Yeah. Well, f- you know, for a certain generation, Home Alone is such a gigantic movie that that may be the most powerful impression of, of him as an actor that some people have. Um, for me, I, like, I think John Candy kind of came up with a lot of other great comedic actors. When you look at the 80s, you're looking at the rise of the superstar comedic performer. You know, he's coming along around the same time as Eddie Murphy and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. And, and you know, he came from the SCTV, you know, as opposed to Saturday Night Live, you know. But, you know, his, his first couple of movies were, you know, right in line with other people's first movies, like even Tom Hanks. You know, when, when they shared the screen of volunteers, you know, that was very early in both of their careers. So he rose at the same time. I mean, it was really kind of a golden age of comedy for, for the 80s, you know, with all those guys kind of coming into their own together. And, he, you know, his role in Vacation, and then he did um, uh, Brewster's Millions. Splash. Splash. Yeah. And Stripes. Stripes. about Stripes. Yeah. That that mud wrestling scene is classic. Yes, but uh, I've I've always been a as I said I've been a huge John Candy fan forever. This is well, it's it's my favorite. But I love Uncle Buck too. But his his work with John Hughes um, was probably my favorite of all the ones he did because he had John Candy just had a certain I think it's like what Cesar said very down to earth, very sentimental. Like C- you could, CJ said that I'm not gonna take credit oh. for. <laughs> it does, it's okay um, but he always just had a very down to earth and he brings that a lot with Del Griffith as well and I mean it, you know that one scene where another famous scene where they're in the, the hotel room and John or Steve Martin just completely just rips into him you know you're uh, you know you drink you smoke you know you're you know you make a mess in the bathroom and he just he delivers that that wonderful like full performance where you just you feel exactly what Steve Martin feels when he's just like, oh man, I shouldn't have been so mean. That was wrong. I went overboard. <laughs> but he just had that way of looking at somebody and just delivering lines. He's a good actor. Yeah. Um, well, that's a human that, moment for Martin, too. Sorry, yeah, Cesar, go ahead. It was, it, was, it was against, I think that was a little against character for him because, you know, he did like the jerk and he was always known for being the, the wacky guy. And it was, you know, Neil Page is a very... He's kind of a jerk, like an actual jerk, not the jerk, an actual jerk. Well, I mean, like, I mean, he's in a position full of stress and worry, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think, um, you know, like, he's supposed to be the average person, I guess, you know. That, you know there are times you want to feel selfish, mm-hmm. you know, so. But I guess, like, you're right. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, like, it's something that, uh, you know, he grows as a person from. Mm-hmm. You got to start from a point of, like, kind of disdain. Yeah, and the movie doesn't really go into... Because, you know, the original cut of this movie was over four hours long. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, and um, so that that existed at some point, which they apparently had shot the most feet of film ever at the time. It was like a record. There was a lot of nervous Paramount executives as a result of that. 
Yeah, well, apparent, apparently Paramount like, was really on Hughes, and it was a very uncomfortable set for him. He was going through a lot of personal was, stuff. And he was grumpy in the entire set, or the entire shoot, apparently, too. Um, but there was, I think it's in one of the special features on the, the DVD and and the Blu-ray, but he was talking about how like the, the executives got called into the set the one day, and it was the day they were filming the scene where John Candy was dressed in the devil costume. And so they're coming to see this movie, and John Candy's walking around, like, probably smoking a cigarette with his <laughs> Satan outfit on. And they're like, what's going on here? <laughs> that, that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Yeah, it really surprised me when it happened. <laughs> you see, like, people turn up skeletons. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, mention it now. This is actually um, watching it yesterday was the first time I'd ever seen this movie uh, in its entirety. Moi aussi. What's that? <laughs> Moi aussi. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. I'd never seen this movie before. It's rated R, so we could never play it in the store, and I just never, just never you saw it, never caught it. You just need to mute it for like a minute and a half. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, it, it's that weird. That's the only reason it's rated R is because of that. And the nude pictures everywhere. There's there's a lot of pornographic pictures like on in the inside of the cab and stuff. Oh yeah, there was. There was. Oh, you're right. right. Nudity, or is it just like pinup kind of stuff? Yeah, it's centerfold stuff like bare breasts and everything. Yeah, inside of Doobie's cab. I don't remember. The greatest cab ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, there's a funny story about that cab, too. Please apparently, do tell. John, I'm going to tell you this one. John Hughes had apparently sent, um, when they were doing that, sent most of the cast or the crew home that day after they filmed, like, the parts for the movie. And he, um, he had, like, a skeleton crew working, and he had John Candy and Steve Martin and Larry Hankin, who plays Doobie, improvised for the entire afternoon and apparently john hughes made a 10 minute short film based on it that he like showed around to some friends um uh, larry hankin had not apparently seen it but chris columbus confirmed that he had seen this 10 minute short film that no one else has seen nice yeah well you need to you need to dig that up jason (laughs) i'll i'll get on that it's with the uh, it's with the missing footage that was cut from the final product. Well, according to John Hughes, before he died, he did an interview and somebody asked him about the extended cut of Planes, Trains, and he said it's basically just uh, an assembly cut, but it's just rotting away in the Paramount vault that they wouldn't release it. I don't think they would get on that, or like if if it was still around, they would try and restore it. But you know, they haven't even put any new. Like, not even, like, an audio commentary by, you know, some cast members or fans or something. They haven't done anything new. Same old uh, special features that have been featured for the past couple of years. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, Steve Martin's the only principal, you know. I mean, you, you're going to have, sure. you know, um, Matthew Lawrence do some commentary. Kevin Bacon. Dylan Baker. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Baker's I'm great. I'm surprised to see Dylan Baker. Like, for a second, I didn't realize that was him. He's a bug-eyed, he plays um, a guy named Owen. Uh, Shower He's pretty great. People train run out of Stubfield. 
I love the little bit about his wife uh, having her baby sideways. He ain't screaming nothing. <laughs> that's She's the real trooper. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, so we talked about John Candy a bunch. Let, let's move over to Steve Martin a little bit and talk. You know, Steve Martin at this point, like I guess, was primarily known for his stand-up comedy, his appearances on SNL, and then for The Jerk. Like, at, at this point, he was not a... Ma- I guess he was a movie star, but, like, The Man with Two Brains and a couple other movies, like, he didn't have any really huge hits except for The Jerk, did he? Well, The Jerk wasn't even a big hit. That was uh, that was considered a disaster when it came out. Like, critics hated it, and it just didn't... It didn't do what it was supposed to do, yeah. I guess. But he, um... Yeah, he, it was... It was a little bit different, but it, it it shows off his acting skills as well because he's a very good dramatic actor as well, and so he had, he he had to show a lot of emotion in some of those scenes. You know, like um, you know, as a kid, I was a really big fan of uh, Three Amigos, um, but I guess you know that wasn't a solo starring role. Mm-hmm. No, I do love that movie though. I think that's another one that's become loved over time. I think a lot of movies wind up doing that now. Unless, you know, you have like a massive hit. Some just take a little bit more time to, to find their audience. And I think yeah, Amiga is one of those. Definitely, like, uh, people look back at the 80s quite a bit more fondly. Uh, seemingly now than they ever have. I mean, yeah, like, you know, like, This whole filmography and all, all this old work. And I guess the nostalgia really can carry a movie farther on, farther along. Yeah, I think ever since Stranger Things happened, everyone thinks the 80s were some sort of glory time for cinema, and it wasn't. But, <laughs> but hey, if people are watching some, they'll catch some good classics again, that's fine with me. Because there were some good movies in the 80s. A lot of good movies in the 80s. Yes. Well, especially comedies. I, I, comedy and horror movies, like that. those are the genres, well, I guess in action movies too. Like, the, those were the things that were sort of, like, revolutionized and went into different directions in the 80s. I agree with you. I gotta admit, uh, like, I am not, um, you know, I, I jokingly said earlier that I wished that I, I liked this movie a little bit better since it's your favorite. Um, I, 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 I found myself wanting to like this and wanting to laugh a lot more than I did. Like, I, I didn't find this to be... Um, a laugh out loud funny in a lot of cases like there are the moments obviously the uh you know the the rental car scene and and uh and things like that and, and i i love um the stretch of movie that begins i guess with the the car scene where they're going you know back and forth with the seat mm-hmm. and ends with them like spinning out uh after he gets his like his parka caught and 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 the 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 car catches on fire and everything like that's probably i think for me the best stretch in the movie like i think every scene works and builds and i and i love the fact that the the whole um cigarette butt thing like they they spend a lot of time on that setup before they pay it off there's like three or four other gags and sequences before they finally burn that car down (laughs) (laughs) and that takes a lot of patience and i the the funny thing is you mentioned that the car scene with the seat 
apparently that's the reason Steve Martin agreed to be in this movie. That was the scene he found the funniest, was the adjusting of the car seat. Yeah. Which seems odd, doesn't it? Well, I, I think this movie's full of, like, those little things that we can all relate to. Like, the like every circumstance, you know, like, not catching your plane and having a difficulty with your rental car and not having a good hotel room. And, like, and this is all very relatable stuff. So I, I think that's... Yeah, getting stuck um, because your boss is letting you out late the day before, the two days before Thanksgiving. Yeah, absolutely. You catch. I got to tell you, I love the opening scene. I love the way they compose the shot of the boss at the beginning because he's not a particularly tiny actor, but like they use a big desk. And when they, when they shoot him, they use a lot of headroom. So there's a lot of negative space and it makes him look so small. And then even the photographs that he's looking at are big poster boards. So everything is there to make him look as tiny as possible. One of the things I noticed uh, most is that in that opening scene is how like unique that boardroom looks. Um, it starts, I guess it starts out with like from the boss, whoever, whichever play, whichever actor plays him. But like they, they do start off with like a behind the back shot of him. And like, you know, it's nothing but you're right. Empty space in the entire boardroom, except for, yeah, I don't know where they found that room. But like, even the tiles on the floor are like odd, oddly laid yeah, very, out and weird. Yeah, very, I don't know, very eighties, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah. very massive boardroom. Did you catch the? Uh, if you sting around, stick around. There's a stinger after the trailer or after the credits at the end. Of course, of the boss. Yeah, the boss with the still trying to turkey. decide. But he yeah. has an entire thing. He has a whole turkey and all the sides <laughs> and everything behind him. Yeah. So he's out there looking at. The so another interesting thing on this, um, I all the times I had watched it, I never understood why Neil's wife Susan was so angry at him the whole time. Like she seems unreasonable in a lot of the ways, and I just always I'd wonder if there was more to the story um, because you know she's like, what what does Wichita have to do with the snowstorm in Chicago? Like she's she's just angry at him the entire time. And I could never find anything about this. And I wound up discovering, um, I found a copy of the shooting script. And it's a legitimate copy of it. And I read it, and it just, it gave all this background, this wealth of information that um, I didn't know. Um, in one of the, in the original draft, Neil and Susan are having like these terrible marital problems. And she was giving him hell for traveling before Thanksgiving. She thinks he's having an affair. She thinks that Dell is actually a woman. You know, she says, you know, tell, you know, tell, tell Mrs. Dell to say, like, say hello to her. And so the entire time she thinks he's cheating on him because he's not getting home and he's lying. He thinks he's lying to her the whole time. And I think if you remember at the end, when he finally makes it home and she sees him and then she very specific, she like very says, you know, hello, Mr. Griffin. You know, it's almost like she was relieved because she's crying upstairs when he gets home, and then she sees that Dell is actually a guy who's telling the truth the whole time. Yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, it's not like they didn't have some intimate moments, though. They did. <laughs> they did not. They did not. Oh, yeah, you see that Bears game? It's like a oh, hell of a game. Hell of a game. <laughs> going all the way. They're going all the way this year. <laughs> oh. Well, that's probably, is that the most iconic scene in the movie? Like, the whole, those aren't pillows? Like, that's yeah, that's probably the biggest line in the movie that came out of it. 
Sure, it's what everyone always brings up. And it was the name of their special edition DVD. The Those Aren't Pillows edition. Yeah. That was necessary. <laughs> to be honest, though, like my favorite scene is, uh, I guess they're inside the rental car, and they're talking about things that like they dislike about each other. Mm-hmm. And then John Kenny goes off on this whole thing about how Steve Martin plays with his testicles. <laughs> you play with your balls a lot. <laughs> so you wish you had an extra pair of balls, some extra fingers. <laughs> you know, it make you happy an extra set of balls and an extra hand. <laughs> you play with your balls more than Larry Bird. Literally, literally that was uh, well for the most part, CJ. In, in regards to this film, I I, th- I feel like I feel the same way you described it. Um, I think that my scene, I think the moment when they have their confrontation in the Braidwood Inn. That's the that's the moment where the movie really turns a corner for me, though, because before that time, you know, you don't re- like with Steve Martin's character. You don't really get any sort of like empathy or anything for him. So that moment for me is the part where it changes. But overall, like I, I didn't I agree with you. Like I didn't have many laugh out loud moments. Um, but, you know, the test, the ball scene was was one literally had me laughing out loud. So I'm always partial to the shower when. You know, he goes in, the only towel left is the, the washcloth, and he still continues to dry himself off with it. <laughs> but he just, he pushes on, and it's insane that someone used all the other towels. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't hang them up, they're just laying on the floor. They're just all over the place. And there's a scene where and Steve Martin's walking um, on, like, the wet towels on the floor. Apparently he actually got athlete's foot because of that scene. I guess he had to do it so many times that he was stepping on a dirty floor. Yeah, that during the war and like newspaper. Uh, yeah. John Hughes sticking with the realism. Those are actually used like towels and stuff. They probably were he used them himself. <laughs> so another here's here's another little uh, tidbit that is lost because the all the cut footage. So when they're in the motel room. And, you know, they talk about the beer exploding on the bed when he's sleeping, you know, right before that whole scene where he starts yelling at John Candy. Um, But they're talking about the beer exploding in the bed and they get robbed later that night. And then, you know, Neil accuses Dell of stealing his cash to pay for the pizza. In the original shooting script, they had that whole, they shot all this other stuff. And when Neil's in the shower, the pizza boy is bringing over a pizza and beer. And it costs nineteen dollars. And Dell is like looking for his money, but he only has a hundred. So he goes over to Neil's pants and pulls out a twenty from here, and he gives him a twenty. So he only tips him a dollar, and the pizza boy gets upset. Um, so that's the pizza boy who comes back and robs them later in the hotel room. Really? Yes. <laughs> that's that crazy. The boy. <laughs> and the reason <laughs> the beer exploded is because he had. He had everything on the vibrating bed, and when he goes to hand Neil one of the beers that's warm, he opens it up and it explodes everywhere. So it was Neil's beer that actually he slept on. So that's so that's, that's why they didn't switch sides. Uh, that's why they did not. Well, plus you know he said he just wanted to get some sleep. Plus he can't use. He's allergic to a uh, sponge. <laughs> so what is um? So what we we talked about our favorite part of the. What part? Now, CJ, you said you wanted to like it more. What what was holding you back from liking it more? Um, I don't know. I think I think partially because I, I'm not 
that enamored with um with the neil character you know i mean obviously this is a story you know with steve martin and you know as as your protagonist and and it this this serves to sort of humble and soften his hard edges in a way um but he you know i'm a little turned off by his like self-absorption and his impatience and i guess as the uh the dell character says that he's intolerant you know and, and that he he gets frustrated and exasperated and and lashes out as a result of it that's something that we can relate to but uh i just i i feel like there was sort of no window into martin uh early enough in the film like i think by the end of the film i like him better um but I, I kind of feel like this movie would work better for me personally if I liked him at the beginning and then saw his darker side and then see him humbled a little bit more at the end instead of just kind of right off the bat. He's just he's just another 1980s career-driven guy who doesn't care about anybody else. Um, and you know, it's funny you mention that. It's like the films, it doesn't really follow that typical uh, formula where, you know, you have two people like a buddy movie where two people are together. They have a fight at the end and then, you know, they sort of make up and then go, they have their fight fairly early in the movie. Like that scene going back to the motel again, where they're, they have that fight, with, you know, the chatty Kathy doll. And right. And they sort of just kind of go from there. And John Candy, that, that monologue he delivered, you know, you know, if you want to pick go, yeah, go ahead. I'm an easy target. That's a good scene. I think that scene's really great. Yeah. I mean, because you see, I mean, his eyes water up. You know, it's it's a good physical performance as well as, you know, monologue. Yeah, and and that's the moment in the movie where we we sort of turn a little bit, like, tone-wise. You know, it's not just going to be, you know, a comedy of errors with Steve Martin kind of trying to fumble his way home. And, you know, at that point, it becomes a character story as well. Yeah, I mean that that scene in particular, like that that thing definitely makes you kind of like reflect on yourself mm-hmm. because you wonder, like, because you know, generally you you kind of feel up until that point, Steve Martin, you know, maybe he overreacts a bit, but he's also, you know, it's not like if you were in that situation, you wouldn't be annoyed, but like you know that that moment when you kind of like when he when John Candy when Dell leaves it all out um, and speaks his mind. It's kind of like, how would I, how would I have reacted? And you know, that yeah, that's I, why that's for me why that movie turns a corner in that in that scene. So. And yeah. it's funny, like after he after he does all that, then he goes back into the bed, and then Neil's just kind of sitting there, like thinking to himself, um, "Yeah, I shouldn't have done that." And they cut back to to Dell real quick and he's like looking over before he quickly puts his head back down. Like he's <laughs> I, I do love that. That's great. I, I think, I think the nice thing about that is that like Martin doesn't leave the room. He stays. It's not, it's not like he leaves the room and then they get back together the next day or something like that. Like he is, he's resigned to his fate. Like his, his, you know, he's shackled to this character over the duration. And, uh, and I like that he just kind of, kind of like slinks back into the bed. <laughs> and then they have that wonderful scene the next morning. <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely made up. But you know what else is interesting? Like, if Neil Page, if he actually followed his own, like, his friend's advice in the beginning, he goes, why am I going to bust my butt not catching the 6 o'clock fight? I'll catch one later. 
when they show like him and his wife and you know his wife's at home he's trying to fall asleep too and she's like falling asleep watching tv they make an announcement that chicago air o'hare airport is reopened for incoming flights had he just waited in new york and got the later flight he would have been home but he never would have had this adventure i that's one of the things i don't know if that was intended to be like that but hearing it i'm like that's had he done, had he just stayed and taken the later flight, he never would have had this adventure. Yeah, or, or it would have been fine if he had stayed in Wichita, right? Or if he stayed, well, no, because if he didn't take that six o'clock flight, if he got in the later flight, because that still was his six o'clock flight that got delayed. Yeah, and that's something that Hughes reuses in Home Alone as well, though, because like the mother has her adventure trying to get back to Kevin, but if she had just yeah. stayed, she would have gotten there the same time as the rest of the family. So it's she got there a good 10 minutes before everyone else, though. Mm-hmm. Just enough time to have a quick scene. And, it, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the moment, though, because, you know, in, I mean, we're talking about Home Alone now, but mm-hmm. the, it's the argument between Kevin and his mother. So, like, that's the moment where they reconcile. And, you know, maybe Kevin probably wouldn't have felt so so open had, like, the rest of the family, especially, like, in a person someone like Buzz or whatever uh, was in there. Mm-hmm. Fine, so. just trample on my point there, buddy. Appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, we mentioned the the car exploding earlier. Um, I'm gonna. Do you remember them them getting pulled over by the state trooper once by, they finally they drove that car by Michael McKeon? Yeah, by the wonderful Michael McKeon. Isn't he wonderful? <laughs> Lenny, he's, just, he's lovely. He's, he's a good actor. Like I, you know, watched a lot of Big Better Call Saul fan, and his his uh, his performance as Chuck was is good. He's a good actor and also very funny and a good musician. Can't let can't let that go away. Yeah, Spinal Tap, baby. <laughs> but, that's right. And the the Mighty Wind. <laughs> and Steve Martin is yeah. quite a good musician in his own right as well. Yeah. He is. I like how you said the mighty wind but very gently very gently the mighty like, wind. like not a, not as a mighty wind but as like more of a zephyr <laughs> um so another interesting thing when they get pulled over by michael mckeon he's actually a wisconsin state trooper and they were driving from st louis to chicago so wisconsin's past chicago so they overshot illinois so they that's another thing that they cut out later because if you remember at the end of the movie, when John Candy gets brings the truck over, the, the, the cheese truck that they wind up finally getting home in, he has a black eye. And he has the black eye for the rest of the movie. And they never explained it. So I went to that shooting script again, because this was the main question I had. Why does John Candy have a black eye in this movie? So because they shot past Wisconsin, or they shot past Chicago and went to drove through Wisconsin... Um, Dell had told Neil the story about, you know, they were talking about, you know, know, they get arrested in Wisconsin, get taken back to the station. And he says, well, you know, that's the, that's the rental cars, the rental company's problem now. And Dell tells Neil that he felt bad because since he used Neil's credit card to pay for the truck, he tried to, or to pay for the car. He tried to save him some money and didn't pick up the extra insurance. So Neil <laughs> Neil punches Dell in the eye. 
And you know, he says the line, he goes, that's twice you've punched me today. I want you to know that. <laughs> so for anyone watching out there, if you ever notice that Dell has a black eye, that's why Neil punched him. Oh, I noticed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, why the hell does he have it? Now, are there, um, you mentioned this, I mean, you've been referring to the shooting script. Are yeah. there more instances? Because is there more instances where um, Neil calls his wife about yes. why? Because, like, you only really see that in the Wichita airport, I guess. Because mm-hmm. every other time he tries to call her, he's unable to reach her. Right. Because yeah, you only there's... see at um, that one, um, that one motel where, like, the phone is locked. Yeah. And I think what they did, they probably had to cut a lot of that out because the subplot kind of died. Because there's scenes that were shot in, that were written, that took place at home between Neil's family. Like his Susan is talking to like Neil's parents, and they're having arguments about, you know, what he's probably out there cheating and all this other stuff. Um, So yeah, there are a couple more phone calls, and each one gets more tense than the next. Like she's just said, just make sure that you don't wind up with Dell's panties in your luggage again. He goes, as a matter of fact, I did have his, I did have Dell's underwear on my face today. And so she hangs up on him. <laughs> so, you know, you, you lose a couple jokes like that. But um, I think ultimately it was probably, uh, the, the movie's very tight as it is. And it's just, you know, there was just a couple unanswered things that. Yeah, that's, that's funny because I, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that like, uh, you know, it's a little bit underdeveloped, you know, between him and his wife and the, and the backstory. Um, I, I think that's something that I, I thought was missing from the film as well, you know, because Steve Martin's reasoning for wanting to get home quickly and his need to, to get home for me feels very underdeveloped and yeah, it's Thanksgiving and people want to go home and see their families, but throughout the movie, there's very little conversation about Thanksgiving in general. Uh, and, and there's very little, um, you know, it seems that he has not been home in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so it's interesting, the sort of subplot about her thinking that he's cheating on her, um, because I think that maybe would have given uh, a better anchor to to us rooting for him to get home. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you would at least understand his urgency uh, uh, better. Yeah. So, and I guess I'd... We'll never know why they cut it. I mean, obviously, four hours for a comedy, that's, you know. Yeah. But the movie's only, like, 90 minutes long or so, so it kind of... Yeah, like an hour and 40, I think, something like that. You figure I would know exactly to the second how many times I've seen it. Well, it, you know, it might be one of those things that, you know, where if you cut, like, some of a subplot, you really want to cut all of it, because then it makes even less sense if you just keep some of it in there. But, yeah, um, yeah I think... You know, with Martin, there there isn't enough um, sentimentality about the holiday or about his family, and I think that would have gone a long way for me. I mean, we get some sentimentality out of Candy's character, of course, and that's you know that's one of the great things about John Candy is that he kind of brings that very sort of warmness to each of his characters. Um, but I, I think that 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 infusion of of extra emotion would have been would have kept me a little bit more interested um although their performances are good enough to keep you interested in what's going on i don't know i just uh i yeah, i mean you, you you know he's he wants to get home he wants to be with his family for thanksgiving and it sort of just plays on i guess it just depends on the viewer in that sense whereas you know i 
I love Thanksgiving and I, I like seeing my family for the holidays. And, um, so that's, I understand, I can get that. I, I guess I connect with it in that way. Yeah. It seems a little generic and not specific though. And I think the more specific, the more relatable it ends up being personally. But um, can we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the revelation about John Candy, um, you know, later in the it. film? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, at the end of the movie, we find out, you know, in the in the finished version, Neil comes back to the train station after he puts it all together. And he's just like, you know, why are you here? And he's like, you know, Marie's been dead for eight years. And, um, you know, it just, it breaks your heart. Well, I mean, that again, that's, it's a very short scene. And, you know, it's very sad just the way, because you're just like, God, this guy, he talks about his wife and he's, you know, he doesn't have a home. He just, he's on the road constantly showing. And first of all, a shower curtain ring salesman? What, what's up with that? <laughs> Isn't that a bit odd? Something, on the, something to go on the road, I guess. But, I mean, you think about it, like, he seems to have connections everywhere, though. Like, I wonder if, like, in, like, the extended cut, if he, you know, encounters more people that he sold curtain rings to. It, yeah. It's not, the, it, it's nothing of note. It was like, um, he would just mention that, you know, I sold, I sold shower curtain rings. But he does, in the plane that began the movie, uh, CJ, you'll, you'll probably like this, too. He mentions uh, in the shooting script, he eventually goes, if uh, Janet Lee had had these shower curtain rings, she never would have gotten her fate. Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, I love. I love. He talked about how that, about how that movie hurt the uh, the shower curtain industry for years. <laughs> it was a lot of sliding doors after that. <laughs> <laughs> Such a crazy line. <laughs> that is funny. That is very um, funny. Well, all right. So, and the shooting script does have a different. It's a little bit more involved. Like, Dell has, I think, a, a page and a half monologue, just talking about you know the history of everything that happened because he like, instead of Neil going back to the train station, he actually follows him on the train to the following station. And he realized it cause he, uh, Neil walks around and he trips over the trunk again and he goes back inside. He's just like, what's going on? You were supposed to go, you know, why are you here? You were supposed to go somewhere completely different. And then he does the revelation, you know, she's been dead for eight years. Um, he goes and part of the monologue was that she was sick when they got married and she just never got better. Um, they were supposed to go, uh, or, you know, once she was gone, he'd sold the house and he didn't feel cause he didn't want to be there anymore. His life was empty. Like it's this, like I'm reading it and I'm getting all emotional just reading this old script and I'm just going, Oh my God. And they like open up the trunk and it's just like a lamp, some sheets, towels and pictures and some like stuff from his life and, and some newspaper, like things wrapped in newspaper. Yeah. So it just really painted this extremely like, like it was a bummer. So yeah, I, guess... I, I think you get what you need from the way the movie ends now. I'm glad they didn't kind of overdo it because then it just becomes, it becomes too much of a down note. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I like I, I kind of I kind of really like the idea that it's eight years later and he's still working through his grief. And and I think throughout the movie they lay some very beautiful and romantic grace notes into that character. You know, I the the quote that he has when he's talking to Steve Martin, uh, you know, and Steve Martin says, At least you have somebody to grow old with, you must really love your wife, and he says, Love is not a big enough word. 
for how I feel about my wife. And I, I, I think that's a, a, just like a lovely little moment there. Um, and they don't really, they don't get into it too much, but you get something out of that as the viewer. And I think if you put that with the scene before that, where he's talking to Marie in the car outside in the snow, I, like the revelation at the end is not really as much of a revelation as it is sort of like a, uh, a confirmation of what you're already suspecting. Yeah, I mean, there, there are little moments that they call attention to when he says something, whether it's just maybe like Steve Martin asking, you know, doing a, a bit of a double take, even though he doesn't pursue it. So I think as an audience, you, you notice those little moments, and you know right off the bat, probably from the first instance, um, that something's up, you know? I guess, so what, are they in a diner or something? And then that's when he mentioned something about it, just before they separate. Um, yeah, how he hasn't been home years. for a while. Yeah, just, you know, I've just been traveling so much. It's like I haven't been home in years. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I mean, Candy's great. I, I I much prefer Candy in this movie than I do Steve Martin actually. And I like Steve Martin a lot of other stuff, but you know, he leaves me a little bit cold in this one. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the warmness of the movie, John Candy. He exudes it. Like, yeah, he's the heart. So he's he's a big teddy bear. You know, he's the heart of every movie, including yeah. his scene in JFK. He was the heart of that. <laughs> I, I love him in JFK. He's not in it much, but he's great in it. His you accent know, is terrific. Funny story about you're that. as crazy as your mama. <laughs> Interesting. He he was he worked really hard on that in that scene, his scene in JFK. He like worked very very hard on that. And he because he wanted to be taken a little bit more seriously. Because um, I don't know if you remember in the '90s, he just he was starring in some some shit. Once upon a crime, <laughs> I think comes to mind. Wagons East. Well, that's the one he and that's the one he died on, yeah, which is extremely sad. No, no, and that and it wasn't even that good of a movie, which made it worse. Yeah. But you know he's but he'll, he'll always be Uncle Buck. Um, there's actually um, a book coming out soon. Um, if I can plug this book for uh, someone I know online. Yeah, yeah, I know for it. Is Tra- yeah, Tra- Tracy J. Morgan, she's doing a book. It's called Searching for Candy. It's an autobiography. It's a biography, not an autobiography, a biography. Um, she has a Facebook page and you know, a website or blog you can check out, but it's called Searching for Candy. But she has been working for several years getting this together, and it's, um, it's it, from some of the excerpts I've read of it, and I've gotten some like that story about JFK that came from her. Um, she's just got a lot of good stories. She's spent time interviewing a lot of people. Uh, that doobie story about the 10 minute short film. That's she had that in one of her blog posts. So um, everyone should check that out. And the book's supposed to be coming out in the spring. So something to look forward to. Yeah, definitely. There's going to be a lot of good stories in there. Um, she has one, she did a blog post recently about the shoot for, um, the Great Outdoors, another one of my favorite uh, from that era, but um, it's a good movie. <laughs> uh, I think he's really good in The Great Outdoors too, and he's really just playing kind of the straight guy in that movie. Yes, everything yes, funny is happening around him, and he he is in in that movie the emotional center of the film as well. Yeah, he's he's more Neil Page in that one in The Great Outdoors, with the exception of eating the ninety sixer. Yeah, a little bit, but like. Uh, he's more relatable, I think, than Martin is in Planes, Trains. I, 
always found, I think that was one of the things that connected John Candy with people in general, at least with me. It's just he was a very relatable person, and he was just, again, mentioned it sounded like a broken record, but he sounds, he was he was very warm. He's a warm person. Yeah. So you, you'd like to, you always wanted to see his character succeed. Cool Runnings is another good example of just a movie where, where he was a very... I have to love Cool Runnings. I was going to say, you're talking Cesar's language now. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, his character in that, he, he did a very good job of, he, he conveyed sadness and you, you wanted the guy to win, you know, and it's very similar with Dell. Like, you know, he, that smile at the end, which that happened, there was two John Hughes movies that ended with John Candy smiling. There was this one in Uncle Buck. Yeah, with a freeze frame. Yeah. Yeah. Do how you, much is, uh, honestly, how much does it suck that John Candy and John Hughes are both no longer with us? Like, that's, I feel like, if John Candy were still alive, he probably would have had, and I've told this before, like a career renaissance, probably like, like in a film. Yeah. Like he would have had like a cameo in Kill Bill or something, you know, you just, you can imagine that he would have just had an opportunity to really do something different and great. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, going back to his cameo in JFK, when you look at, you know, how he's able to hold his own with some dramatic heavyweight actors. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly could have gone a, a different route, uh, become a much more celebrated uh, actor, you know. Um, you know, then, he, I mean, he's a celebrated comedic legend, but at the same time, he could have kind of gone that Tom Hanks route and kind of done a little bit more dramatic stuff. And he... um. Yeah, and, and John Hughes, I think his a lot of the reason he went away from Hollywood life is he blamed he blamed Hollywood for killing John Candy, like because they were good friends, and he didn't like after he died. If you notice, like in that part of the nineties, he John Hughes just kind of disappeared. He didn't direct anymore. He only produced things, and he would write things on occasion. Yeah, John Hughes only directed eight movies. And we certainly associate his name with so many other ones because he either wrote or produced them, um, yeah. but only only eight films. Yeah, and you know who knows who knows what else he could have been writing to. So it's kind of a kind of a bummer. Yeah, this took a turn. This took a turn. It, it happens though. <laughs> it does. Hey, can yeah. we uh, real quick? Um, you know, I I just the couple things that we haven't we haven't talked about that I just kind of want to point out, not necessarily you know discuss, but you know like the wardrobes between John Candy and Steve Martin. You know, <laughs> Steve Martin is wearing all gray. He's kind of got that very Mad Men esque like advertising look to him and candy's wardrobe is all like primary colors it's all bright he's got that bright blue parka he's got red gloves um so you know they're they're exact opposites when it comes to that um and i think that's a nice touch that kind of like um represents aspects of their characters um and uh john candy's trunk dell's trunk um we were talking about you know you mentioned that there's a scene in the shooting script where they open it up and you get the chance to see what's in it and it's all personal items. I think for me, I got the sense of that throughout the movie, especially because it doesn't he pull his pillow out of there too, right? Yes. In the hotel room. And, and uh, you know, he's got this giant trunk covered in like hotel stickers, you know, which is, you know, something we typically, you know, associate 
as something to be admired, you know, like, you know, oh, you know, he's well-traveled, he's been everywhere, he must have a lot of stories, he knows a lot of people, um, and, uh, and I think in this case, when you get to the end of the movie, that, that meaning sort of gets reversed, um, you know, that it becomes a very sad thing, you know, that he basically lives out of that trunk, you know, he's on the road, because he has no home since his wife has passed away. And I, I like that that symbolizes that. And I think for Steve Martin's character, that trunk is always in his way. He's always tripping over that trunk. Um, and and in a way, it's sort of, you know... The trouble is hurting him. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, you know, it metaphorically kind of ties in with his character as well. So I, I, I really liked that. Really good, really good pull, man. I never, never would have considered that. Yeah, what that's. Oh, go ahead. No, I was. You know, you mentioned that with the the stickers on there. There's a line in the shooting script at the end, part of you know his two page speech. Um, he says he I number about three hundred motels as my home. So he, I mean, he just he lives on the road the whole time. But yeah, the, yeah, about the trunk. So what you're saying? What nice thing happens to okay by the end of the film. Of course, they're they're in time for Thanksgiving dinner, and you know, we find out that uh, you know Steve Martin's there, and um, because of uh, stuff that was cut out, you know, we realize now that uh, you know their marriage is is probably on the up and up. Um, what do you think happens to Dell's character after after Thanksgiving, though? Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I, I'd always thought of that. You know, there's the the cynic in me that thought that we joke around and just say, you know, what if. Dell turns out to be like a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to, and like he's finally happy because he has like a good, you know, yeah. At the end, he's just like, ah, oh, I got a bunch of people. I can kill now. No, I don't. <laughs> what if he's a serial killer? He opens that trunk. It's just trophies. <laughs> this is what happened to Marie. Now I don't want to do that. I don't want to think about that with them. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I could just imagine that you know he has a place to he has a place to come back to. I don't think he's gonna leave. American light and fixture shower curtain ring division. Um, No, but I I think the, I think admitting, you know, his past and, and talking to somebody about it, that there's sort of an acceptance in that. And that I like, even though I don't think he and Steve Martin are going to end up being the best of friends after this movie is over. I think that they would keep in touch. If I was going to write a little fan fiction about this, I would say they would maybe keep in touch and see each other every couple of years but I, I think John Candy would probably still live on the road yeah, and that he would, he would not settle back down. I think he would come over Neil's house for Thanksgiving. Every year? Every year. I think that would be a thing. Maybe. Why Why, why not? Just like, hey, remember? Remember when... Uh... <laughs> That's the title of our new podcast that we're going to start. Uh, it's What Happens After the Credits. <laughs> What happens after the credits? <laughs> hey, remember when? Remember when you had to pay for a brand new car that was probably what fifteen twenty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty seven money? <laughs> you think about the money. He had to buy a whole that rental car had to be replaced. That's true. I, you know what I think is crazy that Steve Martin's carrying seven hundred dollars around in his wallet in nineteen eighty seven. John Candy's carrying two hundred sixty three dollars. Well, but he lives on the road. But there's no ATMs. It's not the same. <laughs> you, now. you had to go to a bank ATMs by Friday. Room. You had to go to the bank by Friday at 3 o'clock or you were out of luck for the weekend. <laughs> These days, because of bank cards, I carry like 20 bucks in my wallet and that's it. <laughs> I don't even carry that. 
<laughs> if I ever have a dollar, I buy a scratch off with it to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't win, damn it, I got two. <laughs> I I love the little bit when they're in the hotel room and Steve Martin's trying to call his wife, but there's a lock on the phone. <laughs> So he can't get the rotary around to call the number. And, and the other, the, their camaraderie when they're both drinking all the, the liquor samples. Yeah. I, I connect with that. I've had evenings like that, uh, hanging out at like conventions and stuff and like hanging out in hotel rooms and just drinking whatever booze, eating Doritos. Yeah. Is this a combo or what? <laughs> <laughs> So wait, are the is that, is that was that drinks or motel, was that motel drinks or do you think John Candy was carrying that? I you know I thought he would I would think he was carrying it yeah. because that doesn't like the type of hotel that would, or motel that would, that would have a bar Jamaican, Jamaican <laughs> rum. An interesting story, you know that the the hotel clerk um, he was uh, he became a lawyer and got eaten by a dinosaur. Yes. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He played Gennaro or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he got fired for lending, you know, because the room got destroyed because he took a watch as form of payment, no credit card. Yeah, Martin Ferreira. <laughs> <laughs> I want to think. I want to think that Jurassic Park's in the same cinematic universe as Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I gotta say though, it's kind of inspiring that you know he was probably studying for his bar exam. I think he was going to night school at that point. <laughs> he was like, like the kid in the gas station RoboCop. He's just studying. Solid boy. All right, hey, uh, let's start. Let's start wrapping this baby up. Cesar, you got any final thoughts? I'm gonna give Jason the last word, but you got any final thoughts? Well, you know, like, uh, you know, I thought it was a pretty funny movie. I don't know, um, with it being my first view, I don't know how. Um, how I feel about it since it's only been like a day since. Um, but overall, you know, I thought it, I thought it was funny, but um, I think this discussion has like kind of changed the way I, I look at the film. Uh, I think a second viewing, I'll probably look at it like quite a bit more favorably. Yeah. More so than I did. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if I regard it better on my next viewing. Hmm. I CJ. did enjoy it. I just expected to enjoy it more. Well, because now it's been hyped up so much. That's true. I think Thanks, the internet. the point that you made internet. earlier in the podcast um, about how we've really kind of embraced this as the quintessential Thanksgiving picture over the last decade or so, I, I think that has done a lot for, for that um, as far as building this up as being such a great, great movie. And I'm not saying that it's not. I, you know, I just It didn't hit me maybe the right way upon a first viewing. But like A Christmas Story and the idea that TNT plays that shit 24 hours a day, that has become like the Christmas movie of, of a generation. Whereas I think the same thing's happening now with Planes, Trains. Um, so, you know, I'll definitely revisit it again. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we talked about it. Um, you know, one, one other thing, I guess, that, uh, that I didn't get a chance to point out earlier um, that I, I couldn't help but think of this like through the first third of the movie. It kind of goes away a little bit, but the first third of the movie, like Steve Martin is, uh, or I should say John Candy's the tortoise and Steve Martin is the hare, essentially. And, and uh, Martin is always hustling around to get places fast and Candy's very relaxed, goes with the flow. 
he even has that line in the movie where he's like, I'm a twig on like a mighty river or something like that. Is that the line, Jason? It's the, um, like a twig on the, on the wings of the mighty, um, I gotta forget. Yeah, that's okay. But you, you get the point. I'll look it up up by the, by the time you, um, but yeah, like, like every time, you know, Steve Martin's rushing around and wherever he goes, John Candy is like, he's there ahead of him. When he shows up at the airport, Candy's already there regardless of how fast Steve Martin tries to rush around for things. You know, every time he turns Right. And then when Steve Martin does manage to get ahead, you know, then John Candy's never far behind. (laughs) And so for the the first third of the movie, that's all I could think about um, was that, you know, it was a tortoise and the hare story. And they're like, is this a coincidence or what? (laughs) (laughs) But it, it was like a twig on the shoulders of a mighty stream. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we're going to throw it to you uh, for the last word here, Jason. Uh, you know, why do you love this movie so much and why should people watch it? I, it, again, I'm a, I love Thanksgiving. I love the sentiment of this movie and uh, John, the, just the characters growing and just, uh, I, I can find, I can connect with both characters and I understand what they're going through at every at each point of their uh, development with each other. Um, I almost feel like I've been there with certain experiences of my life. That's why it's a very relatable movie. He apparently this is based because John Hughes, um, went through something similar. He got a, a delayed, had to land in Wichita, but he wrote the script over a weekend and speaks to his talent that he could just create something so great with such little effort. Um, well, but he was he was infamous for writing scripts over like just a few days. So yeah, it's it's. I wish I knew how he did it. <laughs> I wish I knew how he did it. Um, but no, I, I think it's this was probably peak John Candy between this and Uncle Buck, uh, especially working together with John Hughes, uh, him the two of them together. But it's. Uh, I always like movies that I can. I don't have to, like if I see multiple times, I can just put on in the background and just sort of like catch pieces of it if I'm doing something else. Um, and I always, I always find comfort in John Candy movies, just hearing his voice and just seeing him. I just, I like it. Um, so yeah, and I'd like to encourage everyone also, again, go check out Searching for Candy. It'll be out next spring, but you can read the blog post as well. And uh, Now, Jason, always- you have an upcoming project of your own. Is that something you can talk a little bit about? I can. Uh, I'm involved. Uh, I'm a co-writer on a comic book called uh, God Mode. It's coming out. It's a four-issue set. Uh, it might be more. So hopefully, uh, if everyone goes out and buys it, and it's really popular, it'll be great. But it's about uh, it's about video games and the internet in 1995. But it's it's going to be a. Uh, I'm excited about it. So th- that should be coming out. And the first issue should be hitting. I'm hoping by the end of the year. Cool. I remember. I remember God Mode originally used to contribute. Yeah, I, I, I worked on the uh, the online comic, but this is actually going to be in physical form. You'll be able to buy one and hold it and look at it. It'll be a page turner and smell it. And smell it. Smell. Smell my comic. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's great. It's uh. Keen Spot's putting it out, and it's me and my brother-in-law, Mike Rosenzweig, we're working on this. And it's been uh, it's been been fun to revisit 1995, awesome. the year after John Candy died. 
Well, uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. Um, do you have a do you have a digital footprint that you want to throw out there, or a Twitter handle, or anything? I'm Swoboba Fett. You can find me on Instagram. I post a lot of Funko photos, so that's what I'm kind of. Everyone knows me there. Well, we'll talk about Funko maybe the next time we have you on the show. So we'll yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more. We could we could do a small segment on making fun the story of Funko. We could. <laughs> So, yeah, check out Jason's stuff. Uh, Cesar, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, of course, filmsmash.com or on Twitter at Junior Biho. And you can find me on Twitter at Setting the Frame. Um, so, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Jason, thank you so much for giving us part of your Sunday afternoon. You're welcome. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, thank you as always, me. Cesar. <laughs> thank you, CJ. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we will see you guys next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Happy Turkey Day. Ah. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.